Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. My name's Reagan. What's your name? I I wish I could learn that way. That would be awesome. Uh, Well, I have the privilege. I know a few of you guys, uh, and actually a while back, I've known Hector uh, since he was a teenager, and he's still a dork. I'm just playing. I love him. I love him. And, and uh, Bobby, uh, I've known Bobby for a while now, and uh, Ryan Garrett, and I go a long ways back too, all the way back to high school. And uh, and I just met your pastor, and he's an amazing guy. I could definitely hang out with him and eat French fries and, and drink a Coke. You know, he's a great guy. I love him. Love his heart, and he loves his church. And I heard that in just two seconds of hanging with him. And I love that. Um, there's three things in my life that are my favorite things. My first and foremost favorite thing is I get to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that he's redeemed me and he saved me and I get to follow him through this life and do what he tells me to do. I love that. My second favorite thing is I love being married to my righteous, hottie wife named Beth. I wish she could be here. She's, an ama- she's the most amazing person I know on this planet. And then my third favorite thing is raising four kids, right? I love four kids. It's so much fun. <laughs> now they're great. I, my, uh, uh, my, my, my next to my youngest, my daughter, uh, Charlie Ann, she's a cartoon character. And uh, she, she really says the, does the funniest stuff, man. We always are recording what she says and does because you never know what's coming out of her mouth. And she loves to sing songs, you know, and make up her own words. Anybody else's kid does that? She's five. And uh, the latest one was, God's not dead, he's surely a tiger, living on the inside, purring like a lion. <laughs> Whatever, you know? And don't try to correct her. She, she doesn't want to hear the correction. But uh, the other day she was singing, she was kind of making up her own words, you know? She, she's like, Jesus is good and devil's bad. We hate the devil. <laughs> Jesus. And she went, get you some attention, Jesus. <laughs> I thought, man, I'm doing an awesome job parenting. Um, but I tell you what, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, isn't that to be the cry of God's children? Get you some attention, Jesus. We exist to bring attention to Jesus. That's what we're here for. And when he adopted you into your fam, into his family, I think a lot of us thought that that was just about getting over some past mistakes or, or getting out of the hell and getting the heaven ticket. And, and we didn't realize, no, he was saving you into a mission. And that mission hasn't changed from day one. Jesus has always been on the mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And he left us with a great commission when he said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe. That means obey, walk in, actually do and follow everything I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, that's still what Jesus is about. That's still what his church's purpose is. Otherwise, when you pray to ask Christ in your heart, zap, you'd have went to heaven. But you're still here for all the people who have not yet been redeemed. You're still here for all the broken and hurting, the people who don't know him yet. And on top of that, it was a call to make disciples. That means when I lead someone to the Lord, I take them and I shepherd them from infant to child to young adult to reproducing parents. We're a faith family. And a healthy family reproduces generationally, don't we? We are to take someone and move them to a place where not only are they a disciple, but they too are reproducing disciples. And that's what a healthy faith family looks like. We are called to that great mission. 
And I just want to give us a snapshot today of how do you make disciples? Because I know when I say that, that's intimidating to a lot of us. We think, man, I can't do that. You know, that, that's something Chuck does. You know, Bobby does that. I don't know how to do that. But I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians with me. And I want us to take a, a snapshot look at the church in Thessalonica, one of the, one of the early uh, faith families in, in the big movement that Jesus started. And by the way, that's what Jesus started. He didn't start a bunch of building. He started a movement. He started a reproducing, multiplying, redeemed people movement. That's what he started. So you with me? Everybody in 1 Thessalonians? So when we start out in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, we just see right, right quick like in, in verse 2, him saying this, he's commending the Thessalonican believers, and he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul loved these believers. He held them in the highest esteem because of their contagious faith, their passionate love, and their unwavering faithfulness to the gospel commission. And by the way, this is what all of us are to be as disciples. We're to exist in a community of love that loves God and loves people, and we're committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to all be. There's this teaching that kind of crept into a lot of the American church where, where we say, well, you can be a Christian, but not a disciple. And I, I want someone to prove to me in scripture where that was ever an invitation, where Jesus ever gave that as an option. Oh, it's okay if you just say you believe in me, say you follow me, but don't really trust me and don't really follow me, that that's the kind of relationship you can have. That's not in there. We are all called to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're called to walk with him. You, you lay your life down before and say, I give up control. I give it to you. And now I want you to be the king and the Lord of my life. I confess that with my mouth and my feet are going to follow it in faith. I'm going to walk in this newfound life of grace and forgiveness that I've been made whole in. And I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit now to live a life that is obedient and holy before God and that is on mission with him. Can I get an amen? That's weak. I'm in New Orleans. They get it better than that. Can I get an amen? amen? All right. So listen to me. This is what we're on. And listen, a lot of us think that's some distant dream for us. I can't be that kind of disciple. And I certainly can't make that kind of disciple. Here's what I know about a lot of us. A lot of you in this room, here's what I know about you already. You know, you, you think the way a lot of us have thought and the way I've even thought before. And that is that I can't be used by God to do anything for his kingdom. I can't make disciples. I mean, I'm just not there yet. And really, I shouldn't be held responsible for sharing my faith. I shouldn't be responsible for even sharing my story of salvation with others until I've reached this obscure level of spiritual maturity somewhere else down the road. And a lot of times that even comes from us in teaching roles. We're guilty a lot of times of not even expecting that of someone that we're teaching the word of God to. We, we don't really expect them or call them to take action and live out their faith and to pass on what we're teaching to someone else. We really don't call for that because we also think to ourselves sometimes, well, they need to understand and know everything I know and understand in order for them to be effective at doing anything. So until that time, we'll just go through this process. And process is true. Process happens. But a lot of times our view of that is not exactly in line with the way God views that. Listen to me. We have in our society, in our culture, in the American church, we have this knowledge-based discipleship model. 
where what we say is read more books, go through more curriculums, do more conferences. Not that any of those are bad. We need to wash over our brains and renew our minds with the God's word. But what we think is that the more I do that, the longer I do that, the more Bible studies I can sit in on, the more mature I'm going to become and the more effective I'm going to become at reaching the lost one day. And that one day keeps getting pushed further and further away. And before you know it, you're ending your life and you haven't led a single person to the Lord. You've never shared your faith. In fact, did you know that like 98% of believers will die and never have led anyone else to the Lord? So you can say ouch right there. See, my friends, the problem with this mindset is the gospel is slowed down to a crawl and it's going forth and then it's spreading. Every second someone dies. 150,000 people will pass away today and the majority of them will bust hell wide open because they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't have a relationship with him. And the church, meanwhile, we're designed for slow growth, which consequently means we're designed for slow death. Let me explain that to you. In the time that we're spending determining whether or not I'm ready to actually apply and obey the truths of God and his word, and then to pass those on to other peoples, in the, in the time that I'm determining whether or not I'm mature enough, Christians and whole generations are getting missed. If you were born before 1946, 65% of your generation are Christians in America. My generation, which is Gen X, from 1977 to 1994, only 4% of my generation are Christians. What happened? How did we get missed? It's a failure to make disciples. It's a failure to line ourselves up as God's people with God's model and God's method for redeeming the world which was every individual believer taking it on themselves to go out into the world and make disciples in their families, in their communities, in their circles of influence. My friends, every week we need to understand that the population growth in our country is growing exponentially faster than our reproduction of disciples and, and churches. And the distance between light and life has grown exponentially we, we have got to close the gap. And we can't. But we've got to line ourselves up with God's word. Listen, you might not understand this because you sit in the Bible bed and you sit in a healthy church that understands disciple making. And so you're looking around going, well, this is right. We're doing good. Yes, you are. But let me tell you something. In America, just today, three churches will shut their doors and never open them again. In America, by the end of this year, 4,000 to 4,500 churches will shut their doors forever. How many churches will be added in their place? At the max, about 1,500 will be added. We are not doing well when it comes to making disciples. 80% of a church, uh, churches in America have plateaued or in decline. 50% of evangelical churches across these United States, 50% do not have a child or a teenager sitting in their midst. That means they're on their way to death's door. And we boast of being the most sending mission, missionary sending nation in the world. 
Well, we've got a, a, somebody coming up on us right now named South Korea sending the second most missionaries. But did you know that America is the second most receiving of missionaries right now? Countries are sending their people to reach our people with the gospel. We're second only behind Brazil. And by the way, Brazil's got a church planting movement going on right now that you can't even fathom. We're not quite responding that same way yet. I tell you this, not, you know, I know a lot of you are going, man, this is, this is heavy, Reagan. How about telling me life's all great? It is. But for them out there that don't know them, it's not. So my friends, listen, the question we've got to answer is this. It's not about picking up a new book or a new method or coming up with some creative way of doing anything. What we need as the people of God is a mind shift and a heart change to realign ourselves back up with our Savior's heart, our Savior's mind, our Savior's model of making disciples day in and day out, knee to knee, life on life, reproduction. That's what we need to be doing. It's messy, it's hard, but it's His method, it's His model, and it always works. My friends, listen. To disciple and to be a disciple is simple. It means I actually follow Jesus. And that is what we're to teach people to do. Actually follow him. And the question today is this, is our model Jesus's model? Is the model that we're seeing unfold, is it Paul's model? Does it look like the early church? And do we see the movement of the gospel like we did in the early days of the church? Or has it changed? Has it been slowed down? Has it even been brought to a halt? So what I want us to look at today is in 1 Thessalonians, this Thessalonican church. And I'm just going to tell the story kind of quickly, so just hang with me, okay? But it, it, that story is actually told in Acts, and then uh, we'll come over to Thessalonians. But here's what unfolds. Paul, Silas, and Timothy go into the church, or go into the town of Thessalonica. There's a synagogue in the town. And like it's his custom, Paul would go into the synagogue and he would reason with the people and he would open the scriptures and he would share with them how Jesus had to, to live a, a perfect sinless life, die on the cross and resurrect. And then he would prove to them he indeed was the Christ. And in the church of Thessalonica, some Jews believed, many devout Greeks believed, and many of the leading women believed and, and followed Jesus from that day on. But it says he did that for three Sabbaths, three weeks. That's all. Three weeks. Because at that point, the other Jews didn't like it being in their town, so they came and started an uproar in the city. And they came and they attacked the house of Jason. Jason was housing Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They wanted to bring Paul, Silas, and Timothy out to the authorities, but they were hiding. So they drug Jason and the other brothers out of the house, and they brought them before the authorities, and here's what they said to them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. And Jason's received them. And here's what they're teaching. They're teaching that Caesar's not the only king. In fact, they're saying there's another king and his name is Jesus. Well, the authorities certainly didn't like that. And luckily for Jason, all they did was give him a hefty fine, make him pay a fine, and they let him go on his way. Well, the believers were scared for Paul, Silas, and Timothy's life, so they snuck them out by night to the neighboring town of Berea. So they get to Berea and there's a synagogue. So guess what they do? Paul goes into the synagogue and he begins to reason from scriptures about how Jesus is the Christ. Now these Jews were a lot more receptive and noble. They hear, wanted to hear what he had to say. They looked into the scriptures for themselves and many of them followed Jesus. But here's the deal. The people down the road in Thessalonica heard that they went to Berea. So they showed up in Thessalonica and they started trouble there too. So they get 
Paul, and they are fearful for Paul's life, and they move him. They move him all the way to Athens. Timothy stays behind for a little bit, but they move Paul all the way to Athens. Later, Timothy joins him. But when Timothy joins him, we come back to Thessalonians in chapter 3. And when Timothy joins him, Paul is troubled. Because Paul is saying, you know what? We were only with those guys in Thessalonica for three weeks. Man, I'm fearful that the affliction that they saw come on us and the affliction and persecution that's coming on them is going to cause them to fold their cards and walk away from their newfound faith. That they're not going to be able to stay, hold steadfast to the faith and they're not going to be able to hold to the teachings and the, and the things that they saw in us. They're going to have a hard time backing up with their lives and doing their lives. And so I want to go to them, but at every turn, Satan keeps me from going back and establishing them further. So you know what he does? He takes his disciple, Timothy, and says, Timothy, you've got to go back. So Timothy does that, and he runs this errand for Paul to go and see how they're doing and to establish them further in their faith. And when he gets there, he, he gets with the disciples, and guess what he discovers? He discovers that they were just that. They were true disciples. Mind you, they were with them three weeks. We're sitting out here somehow thinking that it takes 10 years to make a disciple. We're thinking that we're not ready. We're, we've only been a believer for a year or two years. And we're thinking, I can't do anything yet. I've got a lot of, I got a lot of baggage still. I got a lot of problems still. These guys were believers for three weeks. And I want you to see what it says about them after just three weeks. Here's the letters. Uh, Timothy spends time with them, not more than 12 months. And he comes back. But here's the, the, what it says about them in verse 6 of chapter 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has this word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. These people, when Paul, when Timothy arrives back, they were already showing that they were, they were a solid group of Jesus following people with fiery faith and a contagious love. And it was spreading from them all over the region. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing? I mean, that's, that to me, I read that and go, what in the world? Is this the way it should be happening still? Absolutely. My friends, they might not have known everything they needed to know of every teaching that Jesus had spoken. But what they did know, they obeyed and they walked in it and they were faithful to do what they did know already. And so this is what real discipleship looks like. It's discipling for obedience more than just knowledge. It's, it's an obedience-based discipleship rather than a knowledge-based discipleship. So he sends Timothy back, and for 12 months, he's exhorting and establishing the believers. And when they left, the only thing that ever came back were these letters of encouragement to the church. And, and, and this was a multiplying group of disciples already. Paul was like a proud papa over this new family, right? He was a, he was a spiritual father. In fact, in chapter 3, it says this. Watch this in verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if we are standing, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. He is sitting there going, man, I am just, I'm alive. You know, do whatever you want to to me, but I'm alive knowing that the children that we've raised up in the faith are out there impacting the world with the gospel. 
They've taken it serious. They've went out and now their love is flowing over to other people and they're transforming their culture. By the way, that's the only thing that'll transform culture. It's the gospel. And these guys are failing to do that. And Paul's boasting that. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul knew that they were young in their understanding of things. In fact, Paul says that he really wanted to return to them. But he also understood this, that they were in better hands than his. This is what it says next. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all and as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. He understood that it's not Paul's church. He's not making Paul disciples. He's making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' church. The goal for Paul was to see them actually follow Jesus, not sit around and have Bible studies and talk about what it might look like if we apply them, what it might feel like if we actually did them. He wanted to see them actually do it, and they did. Now, let me ask you a question, church. Does that not look like Jesus' model of disciple-making? Remember, it wasn't even a year into his ministry where he was releasing his 12 guys to go out into the villages and spread the word, was it? He'd bring them back. He would disciple them more and send them out again. He always gave them responsibilities. He always gave them things. And that is the means by which they grew up in their faith and matured. It wasn't sitting in a pew. It wasn't just sitting in an audience, although that was part of it. But it was not the bulk of it. And my friends, this is what happened in the early church. And don't forget that Timothy, the one who went to establish them and disciple them, he's still following Paul around and being established himself. He's still in training, but it's hands-on training. Now, my friends, Paul was firstly concerned that these new believers would hold out the gospel, understand the full gospel, and that is what they would be faithful to follow. And that they would also follow the lead and the example that was given to them by their lives just within three weeks. That was his hopes. And what they knew is that the church was meant to be a movement, and they wanted to keep it that way. So that's why he sends Timothy. And when Timothy goes, it says he established them. You know what that means? That means he put a firm footing underneath them, that he wanted to make sure and firm up their faith and put them beyond doubt that they indeed belong to Jesus and they're indeed on mission with him. And that is the way it's to stay. And then he exhorted them. What did he exhort them to? He exhorted them to obedience, to holiness, and to greater love. All of these things they were already exemplifying, but he pushed them to do more and more and more. I want to pull a few thoughts out of this for us this morning. Is that okay? Okay, you said they talked. They don't talk. Is that okay? All right. So I want us to pull a few thoughts out for us in our church today. How do we make disciples in this way? How do we shift to an obedience-based discipleship? And here's the thing. The picture that I can best paint for you works like this. How many of you have ever seen a mother duck followed by the ducklings? Anyone ever seen that picture? All right. Anybody seen it live? Yeah, you're in Georgia. Come on, go find a pond. All right, so the mother duck, if you notice, the ducklings are always in a single file line behind the mother duck. They always line themselves up straight behind the mother duck. There's a principle that you can see if you picture that in your head. There's a principle that you can see at work here. Here you go. This is deep and profound. All right, ready? Here it is. The deep and profound principle is this. You don't have to be a mother duck to lead a duckling. You just have to be a duckling that's one step up ahead of the other duckling. You get it? 
A lot of us are waiting to be this mature, seminary trained, able to debate atheist kind of believer. I need to know every verse and chapter. I need to, I need to, I need to, I just, I'm not ready to do anything. I don't know enough. I'm not sharp enough. I got some sins I still kind of struggle with. And when all that's behind me, I'll put it behind me. No, no, no. Look, walk with Jesus. And by the way, there's only one leader of this church. You understand that, right? Jesus Christ is the pastor of his church. He is the head of his church. So we're all really ducklings, just one step ahead of each other. And so if you want to be a disciple-making disciple, it is for you to take right now where you are in your journey, not waiting for years down the road. Take and apply the truth that someone is pouring into you, that the Holy Spirit is showing you. Do it and then teach someone else what you're learning. Take them along with you. Just be one step ahead of them. In our lives, if we're going to be true disciple-making disciples, and I hope that that's what you understand you're called to be. Then, by the way, that's not a spiritual gift. That's a commission. Can I get an amen? Yes. We're all to be this. And listen, if we're going to do that, and we really say that we love the people that we're leading to the Lord, if we really love you, if I really love you and I lead you to the Lord, man, I'm not going to leave you hanging as an infant in a pew somewhere. I'm going to disciple you like the Lord told me to. I want to move you from infant to reproducing parent. I want to see you grow up and I want to see you effective. That's what I want to do for you. And so what I want to do is make you, I want to teach you to be obedient to the things of God. Because my heart is that you yourself would learn to hear the voice of God speak to you. I want you to know the Holy Spirit's leading when he's leading you. And I want you to walk in that. I want you to be able to open the word of God on your own and let the word of God wash over you and feed you in personal worship. I, I want you to live a life that glorifies King Jesus and get, gets him some attention. That's what I want for you. And so I, am, I want you to do that. So in other words, I don't want to just tell you things. I want to hold your hand and walk you through things. Because we learn by doing. That's when you really know the life you have in Christ. It's when you walk in it. It's when you do it. And so here's the thing. In order for that to take place, we have to build among ourselves as a family of faith. Dual and mutual accountability. Here's what I mean by that. If I'm discipling you, I am going to hold you accountable to two things. One is to apply what the Lord is showing you to do. Every time I share truth with you, I'm going to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit telling you to do with that truth right now, personally? And then I'm going to, then I'm going to hold you to accountable to taking the truth that I've taught you and teaching it to someone else. And both of those things immediately, not somewhere down the road. And, and they would say mutual accountability because if I'm discipling you, you have a, the right to speak right back into my life. Ask me how I'm applying the truth. Watch me apply the truth. I want you to do that. That helps me disciple you better. And it also helps me to walk with Jesus more faithfully. This is a loving thing. This isn't an impeding thing. This isn't a judging thing. This is love. If I didn't love you, then I would just get up here on Sundays and preach a sermon to you and just let it be. Here's the truth. It could change your life, but I could care less if you do anything with it or not. That's between you and God. In fact, I would tell you, and I know Chuck would agree with me, man, it's a very frustrating thing sometimes just to, for sermons because I know that I'm unpacking truth to you, but there's no way in this environment, and this, this is a big environment, I can't come off the stage when I'm done preaching and go and, and get in each one of your faces at my brother and sister in Christ and say, hey, now what did the Holy Spirit tell you to personally do with this truth? And there's no way that the next week I can go back down the road before, you know, in the one hour time frame and say, did you do it? 
And if you said no, there's no way and say, well, man, I'm going to follow up with you this week and I'm going to call you and see how I can help you do it because we got to work through this together. We got to obey. We got to follow the Holy Spirit. We got to follow Jesus and do this. And who did you say, who did you share the truth with? I can't go around and figure that out. So in other words, for us to have these kind of relationships, it only takes place in an environment where authentic, honest relationships and deep, meaningful relationships can be formed. Now I'm encouraged because your church is there. You have 37 community groups meeting in homes. I'm going to tell you something. Since the beginning of the church, there is no substitute and no better method for making disciples and transforming communities and culture than the homes. Why? People do life in home. That's where they celebrate birthdays and Christmas. That's where they celebrate joys. That's where they mourn losses. That's, That's where they hang out and enjoy conversation on their porches. That's where they have meals together. That's where children are reared and raised. That's where parents and marriages are, are, are built and strengthened and sometimes tried. You know, that's where, that's where life happens. It's real. It's authentic. Now my generation, the Gen Xers, I said 4% of us are Christians. And if you would look at us, you would say, well, man, everybody's walking away from the church. No, 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 don't get that wrong. There's just some new wineskins popping up. See, my generation craves some spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in our lives, but we can't find them. So we're deciding that we want to be that for the next generation. So where we feel like that happens and something we crave is those deep, meaningful, authentic relationships. So what you're seeing happening all over the country, and it's already been happening all over the world, and it's how the early church did church, is house to house. House churches are springing up everywhere. And it's awesome. Real life's happening. People are growing their faith, and they're reproducing at a rapid rate because they're simple. They're a reproducible process, and people are being intentional inside of those homes. I know I'm just like making you drink from the fire hydrant right now. But I'm excited about what God's doing in this church. But here's the thing. Are we going to jump in and be a part of that? We need honesty in these relationships. Guys, you can't make a disciple if there's not honesty. I can't make a disciple from this stage. See, if you're not honest, I don't know where you are spiritually. I can't converse with you. I'm going to bring the wrong thing that you need to hear at the wrong time. But in honesty, we can grow. And authenticity in a safe environment, it's got to be smaller circles where people can really talk and connect but also with a mission of reproducing themselves and walking with Jesus in that. Next, and I, I know i got to hurry up, but we got to train users. And what I mean by that is this. We're so, so guilty of wanting to give all the information up front. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. Somewhere down the road, maybe they'll obey it and do something with it. And we're so guilty of that. In fact, we're guilty of giving people way more knowledge, and it's way outpacing their obedience. And if all I give you is knowledge and you're not obeying it, all I'm doing is helping heap more judgment on you at the day of Christ. I need you to walk in truth. I love you. I want you to walk with Jesus because in that there's life. In that is where you're effective. And see, um, the last thing is this. Every disciple, and this is what they modeled, every disciple is to be a disciple maker. Every disciple. That's not Chuck's job. Although it is his as a believer, As a disciple of Jesus, he's to make disciples. But if you're a doctor, you're to be a doctor that makes disciples. If you're a lawyer, you're not just a lawyer, you're a lawyer that makes disciples. If if you're a teacher, a school teacher, you're a school teacher that makes disciples. If you're a student in school, you're a student in school that makes disciples. If, 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 If you're a construction worker, you're a construction worker that makes disciples. Whatever environment God has thrust you into, that is not by accident. 
He put you there and he has called you into mission with himself. And he wants you to reach them with the gospel. He wants you to make disciples of them, mature them up, start faith communities and release them to go do the same for everyone that they influence and encounter. It's a movement. And if you don't believe me, let me just show you a little glimpse of this and what's happening in the world today. Because it's easy to look back at the ancient church and go, well, we're not really back then. Okay, well, here we are in today. Let me give you a picture of this. In China, I sat down with a man who's a part of one of the greatest church planting movements in the world right now. And he was, he was a missionary involved in this movement. And I got to sit in a room with him and just a few others and hear his story. And listen to what they do. In China, when they lead someone to the Lord, a brand new believer, when that person puts their faith in Christ, before they walk away, here's what's said to them. It's a great blessing to lead others to the Lord. To connect others to a faith community is a greater blessing. And to lead others to start faith communities is the greatest blessing. I want to lead you from great blessing to greatest blessing. And before they allow that new believer to walk away, that new believer tells them back five times the gospel presentation that was presented to them at their moment of salvation until they know that it's stuck in their head. And then they tell them this, I want you to write down a hundred names of people that you know. And then I want you to take five of those names and I want you to share the story that you just told me to them. You know what they said? It is nothing, it's nothing unusual to see second and third generation Christians born in a single day in China. 30,000 believers, new believers are baptized every day in China right now. That's Pentecost kind of stuff, friends. That's something we don't get in America. That's something we're not seeing unfold just yet. Now, I'm anxious to see it unfold. I don't know about you. And I think it can happen. I believe it can happen. I'm expecting it to happen. Now, friends, let me read some more to you real quick. A church planting movement in northern Chinese province sees 20,000 new believers, 500 new church plants in less than five years. In South China, a church planting movement produces more than 90,000 believers baptized and 920 new house churches in eight years' time. In India, a church planting movement among the, uh, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Hapori-speaking people results in more than 11,000 new churches and more than 1 million new believers. Among the Kauai people of Orissa, a new house church was started every 24 hours. Get you some of that. That's Holy Spirit stuff. Listen to this. Growing out of a ministry to slum dwellers in New Delhi, more than 3,000 Muslims have come to Christ in 600 new home churches. The fastest growing church planting movement right now in the world, a movement that began in 2001 in China with a vision to plant 200 house churches in three years, within a year had seen nearly 1,000 new house churches and 12,000 baptisms. By 2009, that movement had swollen to nearly 2 million baptized believers and more than 80,000 new churches, making it the fastest growing church planting movement in the world. And it's not just in those countries. It's in Brazil. It's in South America. It's all happening all over the world. We're way behind in America. And I'm back at 1.5. It says, look to the nations, watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you heard about it. Some of us are fulfilling Habakkuk 1.5 this morning because you're hearing these reports and you, you don't really believe it because you're hearing it and you don't really believe it. Some of us are fulfilling Habakkuk 1.5 because not only do we believe it, but we want to be a part of it and we're engaging in it. And we're discipling people. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me for a second. And I want to encourage you with this.
If you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, you are called and you are empowered to make disciples. Parents, I was a student pastor for 12 years. In my heart, I'm still a student pastor, but God's making me plant a church. The reason He's doing that is because I don't want to see another generation of parents feeling like they're incompetent to make disciples of their own children. And I believe in right disciple-making. We can see the homes lit a fire. Because I'm going to tell you something. You want to transform a community, have Christian homes that exemplify the glory of Christ inside of them. Have marriages that last and are full of love. Have children that have purpose beyond their next thing that will entertain them. You can raise your children that way. You can affect the community that way. And you can change the world that way. And it starts with you being responsible for another person's walk with the Lord. I want to ask you a hard question this morning. Who do you spiritually matter to right now? Who is depending on you right now to show them how to walk with Jesus and to themselves become a reproducing disciple maker? Is there a name in your head? If not, church, I want to encourage us this. We need to repent. Because this is the mission of Jesus. Some of you are convinced that this Christian life is mundane and boring and lifeless. Can I make a suggestion? It's only that if you think that Jesus exists for your purposes and you're trying to ask Him to bless your purposes. If you want to see and experience the life that God's holding out to you, the one you were created to live, join Jesus in His purpose, His mission. The Bible tells us to pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ Jesus. You need to pray and ask God to lay someone on your heart. And it might be someone who doesn't know him yet, and so you're going to get to go and kind of be that natural birth parent where you, you see them come to faith and life in Christ, and you disciple them from that moment. Or it might just be looking around at someone who's already in the faith, but they sit there as a child or an infant longing for a spiritual mother or father, and you need to adopt. And you need to make them someone that you're going to pour into and share life with. Your environment and the homes is set up perfect for that. But even beyond that, it's got to go even deeper in relationships. Go grab coffee once a week, pour into someone. Walk life with them, let them see you be faithful so they know how to do it. And then give them responsibility to do it themselves. Father, I pray right now that you would empower Sugar Hill Church, just like you're empowering your church all over the world, because that's the reality, God. This isn't a church by itself. Lord, we're a part of a global church, one body, one spirit, and we belong to you. Lord, you are leading your church. I believe that you're recentering your church on your purpose. You're calling us back to operating like a faith family. You're calling us back to your great mission and asking us to shrug off all the distractions and be about what you're about. Break our hearts, Lord. Burden our hearts and then empower us. Give us that great joy. Let let the thanksgiving of our salvation overflow into obedience and fellowship and let us be effective out in the world. Remind us, God, we're, we're not the church in a building. We're not, we didn't join a club, but Lord, we are the church as your people. Use us, Lord, for your name, that you would get attention and glory. In Jesus' name.